0: Identity and Access
1: Management Welcome to the Identity of the Center podcast I'm Jeff and that's Jim Hey Jim Hey Jeff, how's it going? I'm pretty good, and you? Good, I'm excited Today we've got a guest
2: uh, from inside the Beltway And it's not somebody who's going to divide the country Uh, (laughs) We're going to talk about Uh, Identity and access management topics, which I think at this point are probably one of the last
1: safe areas.
2: It should be safe soon.
1: Yeah, yeah. So far, we (laughs) you know give it time. Right. Exactly. Um, Yeah, we're actually going to talk about zero trust today, which has been top of mind for a lot of people. And actually, I know a lot of our customers, Jim, you and I, have been having conversations with from an advisory perspective have, have expressed a great interest in this area. And I think it's something that um, is going to be interesting to discuss with our guests and let's let's bring her on. Uh, we've got Rebecca Nielsen. She's the Director of Technology Integration at PKH Enterprises. Uh, she's joining us today. And we might actually also be blessed with an appearance by Trouble the Cat who may or may not appear as part of her microphone feed. We will see how that goes. Welcome to the show, Rebecca.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: So, Rebecca, you recently um, gave a presentation at Identiverse uh, around Zero Trust and whether it was hype or game changer. And uh, we we'll, will I'll have a link to that in the um, show notes for today. But... There's a chance it may not be there by the time people listen to this. So uh, apologize in advance if, if that's not there, but it's there as of right now. So we checked right before the show uh, to make sure that was there. Um, but before we get into the Zero Trust stuff, maybe you can exp- uh, talk to the, our audience. Uh, how did you get into identity and access management? Is it something that you chose or something that chose you?
0: So it's definitely something that chose me. I actually came to identity management via public key technology. I ended up supporting a very early implementation of a public key infrastructure for um, the Department of the Navy. And I still remember a conversation I'd had with a security officer before then who told me, oh, you really should consider a career in security. You'd really like it. And I remember telling him, no, I was not interested. (laughs) And now 25 years later, this is what I am doing full-time. So the PKI, which is obviously a key credential piece of identity management, sort of broadening the picture because it's not the only piece that's important.
1: So from a zero trust perspective, maybe we can start with that. So do you want to spoil it? Is Is the hype legitimate for zero trust or should we let people kind of wonder?
0: I think we'll start at the the end. Um, There's a lot of hype in zero trust. And one of the things that I found very interesting, so even doing a little bit of market research on zero trust is that a lot of the data that's out there is about what zero trust isn't. You know, it isn't a technology, it isn't a complete solution. Um, But on the other hand, so there is a lot of hype. There are a lot of vendors selling, well, you must buy this because then you will achieve zero trust, which of course contradicts the analyst statements about how zero trust isn't a thing. Um, But zero trust is a philosophy and it's a different way of looking at how you integrate and orchestrate various pieces of cybersecurity, including identity management together to sort of achieve a more effective implementation, more effective security. So there's a lot of hype in zero trust, but we'll say is also something that is worth looking into to find the pieces that can work for you.
1: How do you define zero trust? If you were gonna give a 30 second elevator speech to someone who doesn't know anything about it, what do you tell them?
0: So I would define it, and I will tell you, this is probably not how you'll see it defined on the internet. I would define it really as a collection of security technologies that you integrate together to achieve better assurance and better access to your sensitive data. So specifically, it's identity management, because if you don't know who's, who's asking, then you can't control how you're sharing it. Endpoint management, you know, what are the devices that are being used to share that information? Network segmentation is a big piece. So the idea that networks are not ultim- always connected, but that you have to create a permission for a network connection before you get access to a resource. And then obviously managing the data itself, understanding the importance of various pieces of data within your enterprise. And then the final piece that Zero Trust adds in is kind of the user behavior analytics of being able to use real-time monitoring to be constantly making decisions about is this connection still trustworthy?
1: Are there any specific best practices that, that you can think of when it comes to enacting a Zero Trust uh, architecture or or maybe even it's a program right within an organization
0: so I think the first best practice really is to take an inventory of where you're at what have you, what are you already doing, and do these things that you're already investing in, do they talk to each other? Does your endpoint team that is hopefully doing some management about um, putting patches onto your operating systems, maintaining any sort of virus protection or malware protection? Um, Are they talking to your identity management people (laughs) who are looking at authenticating a device as it comes onto the network or authenticating the user of that device, or are they completely separate silos? So I think the really first lesson learned is get your different security teams all on the same page so that they are looking at how to move forward together, not at each technology as a separate thing.
2: I guess in my mind, I always organize zero trust. or, Or let's say the aspect that really jumps out at me is, Kind of the breaking down of the perimeter as a way to defend resources, uh, cyber resources. So, kind of you know, in my early days, I'm sure, in your early days of of IT in general, the idea was that the firewall is kind of the the main point of defense, and we keep the bad guys out by having kind of a, a, a crunchy shell, if you will, and that that allows you to have kind of the softer center. Um, and so when this zero trust concept first came out, it was kind of revolutionary, right? Or it was going against um, that long held belief that if you have a strong perimeter, you're somehow you're safe, right? Because you're keeping the, the bad actors out. Um, and why I really feel like um, zero trust has kind of gained a foothold over the past few years is that these data breaches are, are happening at an alarming rate. Um, you know, the trend is only that it's going to get much worse and that a lot of the malicious actors are actually insiders. I mean, uh, Jeff and I use a, a slide very often where we talk about, you know, the percentage of data breaches that are committed by insiders and it's about a third. Um, and Jeff, I don't know if you know the source for that, but... I mean, that's, that's kind of alarming, right? And when you think about it from that perspective, firewall does you no good. Uh, I think it even a step further that you then take a, a device home. We're all going in and out of um, networks, at least before COVID. Now we're mostly out of the network. Uh, but, you know, prior to COVID, you take a device home, potentially gets compromised and you bring it back and you put it on the network and now you have a compromised device on the network that, you know, could be committing attacks without you even being aware so um i can see why this um why it's gaining such steam and really that's i think you know zero trust and identity at the center they kind of say the same thing because we're looking at identity uh as kind of the new perimeter so it's the point where you can actually secure data it's using the identity and, and strong authentication So then that strong authentication tying back to usernames and passwords very often, that's just not a sufficient control. I mean, passwords are, um, you know, let's assume that you're inside the network and you're trying to um, run a bot just to, you know, do credential stuffing. Uh, You can try thousands of passwords a second. And again, if that assumption is, is that you're on the network, you're somehow safer, you probably don't even have the the network controls to detect or prevent that type of attack. So you know those are were kind of some of my my thoughts. Rebecca, I don't know if anything I said there kind of triggers any thoughts on your end.
0: Well, I do think sort of that what you talk about the environment we live in that has sort of started this zero trust revolution. Um, one of the comparisons I really think about is, is to medieval warfare, you know, people built stronger and stronger walls, which were great until people, until the enemy learned how to fly, you know, doesn't do any good to have a really strong wall if somebody's just coming over the top of it. Um, and I think that is what we're seeing with this sort of traditional model of, let me protect the boundary. I'll do a lot of checks and balances on before I let devices inside my boundary. Um, And and as you mentioned, we now live in a very federated world. You know, I'm doing my job 100% from home. And yes, I'm using a workstation that was provided by my client, but I'm still coming from my home Wi-Fi network. Um, So there's a lot of reliance that that workstation is still itself secure. So doing that endpoint management and looking at the health check of the endpoint, because if that endpoint is compromised, it doesn't matter how good your identity is. Anything that's seen on the endpoint will be seen by the attacker. Um, So this... I think the change in thought from assuming that if it's on the network, it's secure or to assuming that the bad guys are also on the network is a very important mind shift and figuring out what's the best way to deal with that. I think is a big piece of zero trust.
2: If I could just make one point to follow up. Um, I think that it doesn't mean that being on the network isn't more secure, right? That's not what zero trust is stating. Is that it's not a control that, um, can rely on that once somebody's in the network they're safe and some weak control like username and password is sufficient um again we i we work with a lot of clients where they say okay well they're on our network so they um you know yes that is that is better right if you're at least defending the perimeter with mfa that's better than than not however username and password just on the internal network or just a recognized device, I don't think is um,
1: really complies with kind of the zero trust framework, if you will. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things that Rebecca, you brought up, you know, you were provided a device in that example, right? There's a lot of people who are using personal devices to access resources within you know their organization, whether it's something SaaS based, Office 365, right? Concur, they're putting expenses in. Uh, you know, maybe even Zoom, right? They're making phone calls, right? And uh, things like that. So being able to manage the endpoint may not always be an option for an organization, especially when suddenly thrust into this, you know, massive work from home scaling that a lot of organizations had to do earlier this year. Um, You know, it's been a couple months. You kind of hope with fingers crossed that they've started to get a handle around it, right? (laughs) But maybe they haven't. So Not necessarily trusting the device, I think, is an important part of it as well. Um, When it comes to zero trust itself as a concept, are there any limitations that organizations should be considering when they're looking to kind of go down that road?
0: Yeah, so I think one of the big challenges anytime you're trying to do things like automated continuous monitoring, as it were, is at what point do you set a limit of allowing a computer to make a decision to cut somebody off? You know, if you're doing risk monitoring, okay, this is maybe an unmanaged device. So that's already a, a ding on the risk score. You're looking at, okay, I have a strongly authenticated the user, but as I monitor the behavior of the user, it appears that this user is not behaving in a way that user is expected to behave. So the, you know, the zero trust piece of it is, well, when the risk score drops below a certain threshold, you either cut them off or you require them to re-authenticate, um, which sounds really good, except if it is a legitimate user, <laughs> um, you don't really want to cut them off from being able to do their job, and if you're continually asking them to re-authenticate, your users are going to revolt. So it's, it is still a need to kind of balance what do you automate and what do you decide you're going to manage maybe after the fact to be able to catch it. And I do think, because usability is also a very important piece for any sort of environment. Um, when you're dealing with your own employees, you have a little bit of power to just say, suck it up and deal with it. When you're dealing with your customers, it becomes an even bigger challenge because you don't want to scare your customers off to your competitors.
2: It'll suck it up buttercup. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, it, you're, you're right on. And, and that's, it, that's the eternal balance. Um, we as I am practitioners, try to strike is the balance between uh, security and user experience. So in your presentation, you talked a bit about strong authentication. You know, it's, there's multi-factor authentication, there's continuous authentication, uh, there's the term strong authentication, which has been around a while. What, what does that mean? How do you define that?
0: So I every time I hear strong authentication, in my head, I replace it with strong enough authentication. There is no definition of strong authentication. It's another term that many of the vendors who are selling multi-factor authentication will tell you how important it is. And multi-factor authentication is more expensive both to implement, but it's significantly more expensive to hack. So it is better than single username and password, but it doesn't mean it is the end all. I, I use usernames and passwords as a consumer every day and the internet hasn't fallen apart, and my life hasn't fallen apart. So in spite of the fact that all security experts agree that passwords are broken, we still use a lot of passwords because they're cheap and easy. (laughs) So the question becomes, when is it okay to accept that kind of a risk, and when do you need to say no, even though it might be a little bit more costly and a little bit more infringing on the user's I need to do something better than just a password.
1: It revolves really around adapting the situation, right? I mean, what's the right authentication model to take? I don't know. You know I think of kind of like a, a house of the door, right? Maybe you've got a key for the front door and then you've got a safe somewhere in the house that requires another key or some other kind of authentication. Um, you know, Strong authentication, I, I agree with you. It's, it's a marketing term. Right. It's that's all it is. And you and you hear all the variations on it. It's, you know, super powered, you know, encryption, still encryption, right? It's strong authentication is still just at somewhere a, a shared secret that somebody has with whatever service that they're using. So um, yeah, it's, the definition of it probably doesn't exist outside of, you know, a few different areas that are really more in the marketing side of things, but it, it encompasses the very important thing of having the appropriate level of security for the resource that you're trying to access.
2: Yeah, Jeff, I think with where you're going with that is it's what are you trying to protect and what are the, uh, what are the sufficient levels of control? I mean, if you were talking about, um, you know, criminal records or hospital records or banking data. Uh, passwords are not going to be sufficient i certainly wouldn't want my banking data uh my banking you know the ability to transfer my money out to be reliant just on passwords Uh, at the same time there are some services where maybe that is good enough so um i think that's that's the real balance i think what is real key here though is having a framework to apply and how you think about this problem you know i've I know there's the the NIST standard that Frank mentioned on um, the previous podcast, one of our previous podcasts, talking about uh, NIST 800-63 level of assurance framework, where you kind of think about, you know, what is the risk risk of the data being accessed and then what are appropriate security controls, and they provide a framework for that. Um, Rebecca, I know that you're in the Beltway, you're probably very, Um, familiar with the FICAM framework, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so the federal government uses the term identity credential and access management, or ICAM, and they have a FICAM services framework um, that's available. I'm sure we can post a link to that. And it's a good way of looking at all of the pieces that go into this concept of authentication and authorization, all the way from identity proofing, who are you, to Credential issuance, how do I connect you to a digital identity, to managing attributes, what do I know about you, and then using that information to make that eventual decision about whether you're going to get access to a resource or not. Um, And I think one of the challenges, and zero trust just adds a level of complexity, is there are so many moving parts, and some of them are technology based, some of them have to do with cryptography and standards, and some of them are simply processes and procedures. Um, And if your process has a hole in it, it doesn't matter how good your technology is.
1: You know, that sounds an awful lot like uh, identity and access management. (laughs) Who has access to what, right? It's uh, the federal version, the U.S. government version of that. And uh, um, I guess I'm not seeing too much of a difference there other than, you know, there's usually a vetting process, right? Um, You know, things that um, FedRAMP, for example, is something that the U.S. uh, government uses a lot to kind of vet technologies and vendors maybe that are going to be providing services and it's a it's a shared type of approach to that type of thing. Does FICAM um, or ICAM, depending on how we want to call it, does it fit along with things like FedRAMP or is that totally separate?
0: So it's kind of, it's a little bit separate. So FedRAMP is sort of a certification process that says, hey, I'm going to look at all the different ways you're doing stuff from a technology perspective. Perspective to make sure it meets a certain set of standards. I think ICAM is a little, in some ways it's, it's broader because it looks at what are the people processes as well as the technology. In some ways it's narrower because it's focused on the specific piece of you know, identity and access and not necessarily on the technology underlying, say, the cloud.
2: So Rebecca, in that uh, whole discussion about uh, strong enough authentication, what are what are some additional thoughts that, what are some additional takeaways that, you think um, people out there should really be thinking about when they're making that evaluation themselves?
0: Yeah, so ideally, strong enough authentication would mean that the cost to execute a successful hack would be more expensive than the value of the resources you're going to get as a result of that attack. Um, And one thing that's kind of important to think about there is that the value of a resource might be different to a hacker than it is to the organization that holds the resource. So for example, um, this is one I actually heard about from a few years back where a hacker actually hacked a taxi database to find out when taxis had been going in certain places, mapped that to an address database, and used it to get blackmail information about who was visiting hookers. So, the value of the data to the attacker was different than the value of the data to the dispatch service, which simply wanted to make sure they had taxis in the right place at the right time. So it also is important to think about what is the value of this resource to the potential adversary. Now, in, a re- in the real world, it's not always possible to make that happen. So in the real world, what's important is to do a risk assessment between the cost of implementing these stronger authentication factors balanced against the cost of mitigation or the cost of what would happen if an attack were to occur, Um, you you know, reputation, Is there insurance that you should be holding just in case something happens? What is the cost to implement the stronger authentication? And what is the cost of lost users, lost customers, if it's much harder to get through your system than your competitors? So what's really important from sort of a maturity perspective isn't always what you choose as your authentication mechanisms. It's whether you've really done the right risk assessment to make that decision.
2: Oh, the things you learn on the Identity at the Center podcast. <laughs> but you know, it, it reminded me of, of a previous discussion we had about um, the MD, uh, not MGM, um, the MGM Resorts. They had a, a data breach, and there were at least theoretic, theoretical um, belief that it was a state-sponsored attack. Um, Probably very much along those lines where they wanted to uh, gain intelligence about U.S. business executives so they could use it for blackmail. And my assumption was pretty much in alignment with that story that you told there, which, you know, if you were at an MGM resort hotel uh, in Las Vegas on such and such a date when you were supposed to be at a conference in in Omaha, (laughs) boy, that sure doesn't add up. And uh, yeah, you might not want that coming out, right? So um, you wouldn't even think that that would be the way that 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 data could get used, but it was like a a very sophisticated attack to get this data that uh, didn't have credit card numbers and things like that. And so I think your point is well taken. You have to, and this is one of the things that we've talked about in previous podcast episodes. You need to think like the enemy or the adversary, right? You need to think, about how would they go about performing an attack? What what could they use our data for? Not only um, what is the obvious, like okay, credit card numbers you're going to dump those on the dark web and try and sell them, but you know, information that about people's um, you know travel history.
0: Well, and I think even sort of the core information that's in like the big data collection organizations, you know, when they were based using that data to figure out your mortgage FICO score, they had probably very few people trying to attack them. But when knowledge-based authentication suddenly became popular, that data became very valuable. And those system owners learned very quickly how vulnerable their databases were to attack. So the value of data also changes over time, sometimes because of things you might not have any control over.
1: I just want to point out something, um... I think our show has really gone down the tubes the last couple of weeks because last week we had uh, Frank who talked about uh, passwords being the herpes of IAM. Now we've got Rebecca talking about hookers and taxis. I mean, I don't know where this this show is going to go, but... Um, I kind of like it, but uh, just gonna <laughs> toss that out there, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Rebecca, you've been super generous with your time, and uh, before we go, um, one of the things that we also like to find out from other folks in our in our industry is what are the resources that they use to stay sharp um, from a IM perspective. Are there any um, you know websites, conferences, podcasts? Hint, hint. Uh, that. Um, that you use to kind of stay up to date on the things that that you focus on on a day-to-day basis?
0: Well, of course, this podcast must be the most important resource, but (laughs) there are, interestingly enough, I mostly just periodically go off and do an internet search. There's a lot of data that's out there. Uh, Much of it is put together by the vendors themselves. Um, And there's a lot of good vendors with a lot of really great research. So, I'm not going to give a marketing call out to any of them, but there are just look up IDAM, look up some of these terms and and download some of the white papers. Don't just look at their pretty web pages, but actually download their white papers. Um, The Identiverse is maybe the biggest identity conference, um, but there are a number of smaller ones and there are also just a number of resources. And like I said, I often just go look at sometimes the random ones (laughs) just to see what's out there. Because it's, it's, a, it's something that's always changing and it's always evolving. And so there's not really one good source. The same really is true of zero trust. There's some really good sort of core books about zero trust. But a lot of it just go see what, the hype, what hype the vendors are selling. Once you've read it from four different vendors, you start to figure out what are the real things behind it.
1: Yeah, try not to fall prey to the marketing machine, right, of, of any type of specific vendor out there. And do the research.
0: You mentioned the NIST um, special publication at 63 That's kind of the government standard for um, identity proofing and authenticator security. Um, they also talk a little bit about federation of sort of sending assertions around, which is how single sign-on is implemented mostly today, some of it better than others. Um, the FICAM architecture. It was a really good sort of high-level introduction to the various ICAM pieces at arch.idmanagement.gov, um, and another document that I've actually been working on. The Department of Defense just published their new ICAM reference design document, um, and that is now published at the DoDCIO website, which is DoDCIO.defense.gov/library. Um, so those are again, it's just kind of a good introduction to some of the concepts and what other people are thinking about in this space.
1: That's all good information. I'm gonna put links to those things in the show notes here. So uh, we'll have those out there for folks to be able to check out. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca. Uh, Before we uh, close it up for the week, Jim, anything uh, that you wanna throw out there? It's just
2: something I thought of as as, um, Rebecca was talking about and thinking about frameworks. This is to me, frameworks for what we do is absolutely critical. So that 800-63, it's kind of required reading if you're an IAM practitioner. It's interesting, I had a CIO uh, slash boss one time who said consultants sell bureaucracy, which I think is kind of a pessimistic view of what we do. But you know, frame, when you think about frameworks and formality, um, they bring a lot of value to the organization, but they do make things take longer. Um, but, you know, as we've seen kind of over, you know, I'll just use the example of agile methodologies. You know, I think when you look at agile methodologies methodologies for deploying technology, they can be tremendously effective at cutting out waste from, um, from the system development lifecycle process. However, you know, I think some people kind of abuse that agile methodology and uses an excuse to not do project management, not, not come up with a plan. In other words, let's just start coding. Um, and so I think that, again, frameworks and formality and process, they're important pieces to what we do. And just pointing to things like the ICAM and and things like that NIST 800-63, invest some time. It, frameworks essentially give you a way of looking at a problem give you a way of thinking about a problem and then give you, hopefully, you know, I like to think of it as like a grid. You know, if you end up on this point on the grid, then it should tell you kind of what the minimum requirement is. So,
1: you know, that's just kind of my thought for the day. So have a plan, you know, move fast and break things is probably not where you want to be from a, uh, an identity management kind of concept. Uh, you know, have follow those kinds of strategies that that others have built, right? These are essentially best practices, and you can avoid some of the mistakes uh, potentially uh, that others have made. So, I think that's a pretty good spot to leave it, Rebecca. Again, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Uh, I'm very disappointed that we did not hear trouble the cat, um, but maybe next time we can we can uh, have that take place. So with that, we're going to go ahead and close it out for this week. And uh, thank everybody for listening. You can find out more about the show at identityatthecenter.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at IDACpodcast. Uh, We'll have a whole bunch of links in the show uh, for this week, including links to Rebecca on LinkedIn if you would want to connect with her, uh, as well as uh, the Identiverse on Demand, if it's still there, and other things around FICAM and NIST and Department of Defense documents the reference design, all that good stuff. So with that, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll talk to you all with the next one. You've been listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. For more episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com.